Welcome to the Capital Integrative Health Podcast, a podcast dedicated to transforming the consciousness around what it means to be healthy and understanding the root causes of both disease and wellness. I am Dr. Andrew Wong, co-founder of Capital Integrative Health, an integrative practice committed to expanding access to holistic root cause medicine to the global community. We are excited today to be joined by Dr. Mark Houston, a specialist in cardiovascular disease and hypertension. Dr. Houston is the current director of the Hypertension Institute in Nashville, Tennessee, and is the author and teacher and, act and really internationally known for his work with hypertension and cardiovascular disease, and is very active in both clinic and research. And he has a background in human nutrition and functional medicine. And I'm sure that uh, intro doesn't do justice, but I first ran into Dr. Houston as uh, he was lecturing at the IFM back in 2012, and that was one of my first intros to functional cardiology, joined immediately after that the International Society that you had co-founded with your other colleagues. And it's just been a really amazing journey to start doing functional medicine myself over these past 10 years. And I'm really excited to interview today and have a conversation with you, Dr. Houston, about getting to the root cause of hypertension. So if you struggle with high blood pressure or know someone with high blood pressure or cardiovascular issues, this conversation is for you. So welcome, Dr. Houston. Thank you, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much. So you have written a new book called Controlling High Blood Pressure Through Nutrition, Supplements, Lifestyle, and Drugs that we are excited to talk to you about today and kind of get your kind of new insights into some of the wrinkles that you've discovered over the years and treating thousands of patients successfully with hypertension and other cardiovascular diseases. So I think let's start real basic first, and then we'll kind of take a deep dive into this, but let's kind of start with, uh, for the audience here, what defines hypertension? I know from 2017, the ACCAHA come out with some new guidelines. So kind of where is that now in this whole? Um, well, the, the term hypertension uh, for the layperson is really high blood pressure. The two are synonymous. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of people think hypertension means you're hypertense but that is not the case. It means your blood pressures are constricted and you get high blood pressure. Um, the definition of hypertension is a systolic, which is the top number of 120 or greater, and the bottom number of the diastolic of 80 or greater. So 120 over 80 is the set point where you start developing different stages of high blood pressure. And so there's stages one, two, three, or four, depending on what the levels are. But clearly between 120 and 130 and 80 to 90 is considered uh, an increasing risk per millimeter of mercury. So you don't even want to have very mild hypertension because incremental increases in blood pressure will incrementally increase your risk for strokes, heart attacks, kidney failure, and other vascular problems. Got it. So, and, and I think that's really important to know because even if someone doesn't have frank hypertension after that 120 over 80s cutoff point, you, like you said, you start getting that incremental risk. Now, is there some low number that you find can be potentially de deleterious? Is it kind of like the free bears and the oatmeal where, you know, too high is bad, but too low is bad. And what does that cut off for you? Yeah. The, the, the opposite is if you get too low of a blood pressure, you will under perfuse your organs. So if it's your brain, <clears throat> you can pass out or lose consciousness. If it's your heart, you can actually end up with a heart attack, hmm. uh, kidneys, you get kidney problems. So the lower limit, generally about 110 over 70. Now, occasionally you can drop a little lower short term, but if you're symptomatic, 
uh, certainly you need to reduce the medications. And most people, for example, they stand up too quick, they get dizzy, lightheaded, uh, they exercise, their blood pressure falls. And you just have to teach them how to check their pressure at home with the blood pressure cuff and then adjust the medicines accordingly. Got it. And what are some common contributing medical conditions to hypertension or to high blood pressure? There's a whole list of secondary causes, but honestly, about 90% high blood pressure is actually genetic. Uh, the other 10% are called secondary. So there's different types of um, adrenal problems, uh, pheochromocytoma, which makes too much adrenaline. Uh, another one makes too much cortisol. Another one makes too much aldosterone. All these are hormones that cause blood pressure to go up due to constriction of the arteries or increase in salt and water reabsorption. Mm -hmm. And then there's a lot of drugs on the market that are over the counter, but also prescription that can elevate blood pressure. So you always look for the, uh, the dietary things like too much sodium, not enough potassium, obesity, for example. Um, and there's a lot of other causes, but those are the main ones that people should be aware of. Now, is it the case that 90% of people with quote unquote essential hypertension are more genetics that is it the case that the genes load the gun, but the environment loads, pulls the trigger, or is it sort of like people are going to get hypertension as kind of the vascular endothelial dysfunction progresses over time? What's your thought on, on the interaction of lifestyle and, and vascular disease? Yeah. So there's clearly two pieces to that uh, equation, the genetics and then the genetic expression. And we'll get to the basics of why you have high blood pressure. But when you have a hypertension gene, and there's a bunch of these, and we measure those, the expression of those genes is three basic responses. It's inflammation, oxidative stress, and vascular immune dysfunction. And so what happens early on is you get arterial disease, like endothelial dysfunction. Uh, the arteries will get stiff. They constrict so that the precursor for hypertension actually is vascular biology problems, vascular disease. And then the blood pressure goes up as a end result of the vascular problem. And that gene can penetrate early as a teenager, or it can penetrate later, usually in their thirties or forties, but you can modify the gene expression by doing certain environmental things. And we talk about dietary things like sodium, magnesium, potassium, exercise, weight reduction, you know, a lot of different techniques. So let's take a deep dive into that because your book, which is controlling high blood pressure through nutrition, supplements, lifestyle, and drugs. So nutrition is that first piece there that you mentioned. And we know that food is medicine. We know that food can change genetic expression. Food is information. So when you talk about nutrition, what nutrition recommendations do you recommend for say a patient with high blood pressure? The best study is called the DASH2 diet. That stands for Dietary Approaches to Stop Hypertension. Um, it was published in the New England Journal, and it's basically a low-sodium, high-potassium, high-magnesium, high-fiber, uh, plenty of protein, low-fat, particularly saturated fats, no trans fats, but then increasing good fats like omega-3s, monounsaturated like olive oil. Um, and... The Mediterranean diet and the DASH-2 diet are actually very similar because they're more of a plant-based diet with the right types of minerals and electrolytes in them. And in the book that, uh, that I just published, we go through all the different types of high blood pressure diets available 
but we really give the Hypertension Institute diet. Um, it's called HIP. <laughs> Hypertension HIP. Institute. Well, we all want to be HIP, so yes. The HIP program. Um, and so if you want to be HIP, there's uh, a lot of information in the book, particularly two chapters that I wrote with my nutritionist, Lee Bell, on what you do to manage blood pressure with good nutrition and good dietary means. Yeah, I think we all want to be hip and uh, stay with the times here. So we're <laughs> reading that. I just ordered it here on Amazon. But I would like to talk about a little bit about uh, some a little bit of tangents here with the olive oil, because I know there's some people that say, uh, you know, don't cook with olive oil. You know, there could be the lower smoke point. Curious what your thoughts are on, you know, cooked versus uncooked olive oil. And, and is, is that even an issue? I personally do not think that's a big issue. In fact, most Europeans do cook with olive oil and they think Americans are really not very smart not to use it. But look, if, if you believe it's not good, that's fine. I have no problem. But you can still use a low point of heat for olive oil, or you can cook it in something else and then pour the olive oil on your food yep. after that. But it's good for you either way. And great. And in our clinic, we also really emphasize the balance of the autonomic nervous system, this idea of sympathetics and parasympathetics. And we know now with COVID, you know, unfortunately, there's a lot of, you know, with the pandemic, there's not only a lot of, you know, deaths, hospitalizations, a lot of physical, but also mental, emotional, and even spiritual stressors, you know, going on. And I think this is a collective trauma in some ways, but how does the autonomic nervous system affect blood pressure? You know, everyone is stressed right now in some yeah, kind. Of it's really important because the sympathetic nervous system is the fight or flight reaction, which causes uh, arteries to constrict, blood pressure to go up, heart rate to go up, and all kinds of other problems, palpitations in the heart and so forth. And if your parasympathetic system is balanced, which is kind of slow yourself down, relax, lower blood pressure, lower heart rate, if those two are out of whack, uh, the sympathetic is going to cause problems heart attacks, strokes, high blood pressure, parasympathetic on the other hand, reduces all that risk. And you can alter those by doing breathing techniques, meditation, relaxation, uh, breathing through a, a machine called Respirate, or you can just teach yourself how to date deep breaths, inhale and exhale on a regular basis. And that's so important. I think this is something that is often under potentially under conscious control and meaning breathing and, and, you know, affecting the ANS, but we often forget to do that. So it's really important to kind of remind ourselves about that. I'm curious, this is more of a clinical question now, but as a, you know, uh, having a clinic here as well, um, curious about your, uh, you know, your protocol for measuring blood pressure when patients come in, we know that there's been studies. I know one from Belgium where it's like, there's a 20 point difference between when they came in at first and maybe they had white coat hypertension. And then, you know, at the end of that visit, it dropped that systolic dropped about 20 points. So I'm curious, do you do that in your practice? Do you find that to be really helpful to kind of measure at different time points? Yeah, we have a very set protocol for every patient when they come in for blood pressure checks. And then we have another protocol for new patients. So let me do the new patient first. And this is something that every physician or nurse practitioner or healthcare provider needs to learn how to do. First of all, read the American Heart Association guidelines. They're, they're in the book, actually, okay. to tell you how to actually do a correct blood pressure measurement. But uh, just simple things like be sure they're sitting in a chair, feet are on the floor, their arm is level, with their heart, not down or up, and that the, the machine is right over the artery. If it's electronic or if it's digital 
or if it's your stethoscope, be sure it's right over the brachial artery. So the first visit of a new hypertensive patient, you check the pressure lying, sitting, and standing with a simultaneous heart rate or pulse. You check both arms to see if there's a difference. And you check the leg pressure because that can pick up a coarctation of the aortas or secondary obstruction in an artery. So you're going to have multiple readings and you record those because you'll pick up, for example, autonomic dysfunction by doing the different readings and positions. Yeah. That's a new patient. Now, once you've done that on return visits, the nurse checks the pressure in the left arm. They sit and rest for at least five to 10 minutes. I then go in and check it in the right arm. We always be sure we check it in both sides for two reasons. One, to be sure the arms are still equal, but also the difference between when they first come in and they rest. And the pressure typically goes down after resting five minutes. Now they've been in the waiting room obviously for a while, but that's very stressful. So quiet room, you're not supposed to smoke. You're not supposed to drink alcohol or caffeine. You're supposed to be in a quiet, relaxed room every time you check pressure. And typically the five minute reading is the best one to get. Got it. So I imagine you don't allow smoking or alcohol in your clinic. Uh, and uh, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and you, you find a, a systolic blood pressure drop of about how much typically with that five minutes? I'll have people that come in, they can be hypertensive, like 140, 160, you know, over 90. And I, I come in five minutes later, 10 minutes later and check them and then maybe normal. That's huge. So there's, yeah. there's a, there's the, they walk in, they're not resting or they do have white coat. Now, if they're really a white coat hypertensive, their pressure may stay up even when I check it, but often it will change even with that five minute rest with white coat hypertensives. And that is huge because it definitely would change your management. Do you, do you add or decrease their medications? You know, sometimes if they're seemingly high, but then it drops back to normal, you're not going to need to to do that. And I think the other question I have about that, we'll move on to some of these other topics here. Uh, but I do think about white coat hypertension. And my understanding is that there is still an increased risk of MI and different aspects, even with white coat. Is that yeah, that's a good point to make. So uh, let's put it in three groups, totally normal tensive, both outpatient and inpatient um, in the office or with ambulatory monitoring or whatever you're using as your okay. criteria. Then there's the white coat hypertensives, and then there's the true chronic hypertensives. The white coat hypertensives have an in-between risk of the two. So they do have an increased risk. And most people now would say that if it's white coat, it probably needs to be treated, but the aggressiveness of the therapy is less because they may go home, it's dropping. And if you give them too much medication, it's too low. Would you say it's almost kind of like a normal glycemia, normal blood sugar versus prediabetes, diabetes? There's some spectrum of, of blood pressure that would depend yeah. on the situation. And, yeah. and the, other, the other one, Andrew, that's important, people probably don't even know about this, was called mask hypertension, M-A-S-K-E-D, mask hypertension. That means their blood pressure is higher at home than it is in the office. That occurs in 10% of hypertensives, and you won't pick that up unless you're having people monitor their pressure at home. So they'll get pressures that are high at home, mm. but they come into your office and it's normal. And you say, well, you must not be checking it correctly. So then you have to have them bring in their cuff and make sure they're doing it correctly. And if once you teach them to do it correctly and they go home, they still have high blood pressure at home. Then you say, well, 
you may be a mask hypertensive. But what causes that mask hypertension? If you, there it's have seen a lot of times with people who have salt sensitivity. Okay. There are probably other reasons as well, but uh, it's a it's a phenomenon we just began to recognize when we started doing 24-hour blood pressure monitoring. Got it. And let's go on to a really major topic of this book and, and hypertension root causes in general, which is endothelial dysfunction, ED. So we talk about ED, a lot of people talk about, think about erectile dysfunction, but really ED, you know, erectile dysfunction is almost like a secondary downstream symptom. A lot of times is endothelial right. dysfunction in general. So let, let's talk about what endothelial dysfunction is. Um, I think you talked about a little bit about the root cause of that. And how is that related to high blood pressure? So every blood vessel is lined with a monolayer of cells called the endothelium. And the endothelium is sort of like the air traffic control system of your entire blood vessel. It mitigates what happens in the blood vessel lumen with your white cells and your red cells, but it also mitigates what happens in the arterial wall. So it's communicating in both directions. So the bidirectional communication of endothelium determines whether or not you have a healthy artery or not. So if the endothelium makes a lot of things, but the most important is nitric oxide. And nitric oxide is a gas that causes your arteries to dilate, prevents atherosclerosis and a lot of other inflammatory problems in the artery. So if the endothelium is damaged, it's called endothelial dysfunction, which means the endothelial dysfunction lowers nitric oxide, the arteries constrict and you get hypertension. It's interesting that endothelial dysfunction actually precedes elevations in blood pressure sometimes by decades. That's why I said earlier, we think now that it's actually artery disease, endothelial disease, endothelial dysfunction that actually precedes the manifestation of high blood pressure in patients by decades. So just as a context for the listeners here, how, how many people is it estimated now that have frank hypertension that's, you know, diagnosed, maybe they're on medications. What is that general percentage? And then is there any data on ED endothelial dysfunction? Because it's kind of like a, a the tip of the iceberg, you know, kind of thing here, potentially. So the statistics, uh, since they changed the normals re recently from pre-hypertension, hypertension, there's well over 50 million people in the United States that are hypertensive. And when you're younger, you typically have more of a diastolic elevation. That's the bottom number. Uh, and then you get systolic and diastolic. And then as you get older, it's predominantly systolic elevation and the diastolic tends to actually fall. So there are really different types of high blood pressure and different pathologies and different pathophysiologies. And so they're actually treated differently, um, maybe a different approach with lifestyle and supplements, but also the drugs that are used. But even for the younger people with the elevation and diastolic, for instance, are, are we still talking about endothelial dysfunction as one of the major yeah. recalls? Uh, all patients who have hypertension have endothelial dysfunction. But as you get older, it's compounded by endothelial dysfunction and more stiffness of the arteries so that when your heart pumps, yeah. The vessel doesn't dilate well, it's very stiff, and the top number goes really high. And when the heart relaxes, the bottom number plummets. That pulse pressure. So you have pulse pressure changes. You can have a pressure of like, you know, 180 over 60, uh, and it's very difficult to treat. Well, I, I do want to get into some of the, the nutraceuticals and things that you recommend for this. And I have some burning questions because I have some patients ask me about this. So I do want to get to this. But before we get to that, 
I know you talk about, talk about the, um, I think maybe the thousands of different insults that eventually, you know, uh, lead to inflammation, oxidative stress and vascular dysfunction, vascular um, autoimmune dis or immune dysfunction. Um, let's talk about micronutrient deficiencies. Cause I know you had done that study with the micronutrients uh, and that, that's a very well-known study about how micronutrient repletion can actually help you know, blood pressure and even normalize really hard to treat blood pressure. So maybe if you want to talk about that and kind of what are the common micronutrient deficiencies that, that people should be aware of and how we can kind of augment that in our diet and nutraceuticals. Yeah, one of the driving forces of the environmental piece for hypertension is your nutrition, specifically micronutrients, but also macronutrients. So the micronutrients would be things like coenzyme Q10, lipoic acid, um, what's called green tea extract or EGCG. Uh, you have electrolytes like potassium, magnesium, chloride, but there's uh, different companies that measure micronutrients. And this is routine in the Hypertension Institute that we measure micronutrients. There's about 30 that we measure. And what's interesting when you have one of those deficiencies, if you replace it, the blood pressure often goes to normal. Uh, the more the hat, more you have, the more likely you are to be able to replace them and get the pressure down. And then we give what's called supraphysiologic dosing of the micronutrients. For example, let's just pick one. Let's just say that your coenzyme Q10 level is very, very low. If we give you high doses of CoQ10, it replaces what's missing, but also there's an effect of giving more than you need to get to normal. So take it up to higher levels. Same thing's true with things like magnesium. Now, is that because you're pushing more like kind of more orthomolecularly into the cell or is it just like in the serum and it's doing its job there? Where's the mechanism happening actually? Yeah, each of the micronutrients has an independent effect that's um, variable. I mean, for example, all of the different micronutrients act like drugs. So like magnesium, for example, is like a normal calcium channel blocker. It dilates the arteries. Yeah. Uh, lipoic acid is an antioxidant, so it reduces the oxidative stress, which is another cause of hypertension. So they have myriad effects. And when you start putting the different micronutrients together, you get a synergy in reducing blood pressure. That's a beautiful tapestry that you can weave naturally to help with the, with the blood pressure. Um, we'll talk about medications later, but I do want to talk about when you decide to do the lifestyle nutraceuticals, when you decide to add on the medications, but I, I do want to get to that. Um, I do want to ask about toxic metals. You know, we've been checking lead and mercury and, you know, different things in the practice here. And um, how do toxic metals affect blood pressure and are they a significant cause of hypertension? Toxic metals definitely cause high blood pressure. And they're more common than people recognize because they haven't been checked like they should be. Almost all of us are toxic burdens uh, with mercury, lead, arsenic, cadmium, other different things, pesticides, organicides. So that we check metals and pesticides and other organic substances in every patient. And I don't know the percentage you know, nationwide, but I would say in my practice, we'll find probably 25 or 30% of the patients with hypertension that have heavy metal or pesticide intoxication. We're, we're, we're not checking on everyone, but the people we check, we don't find anyone unscathed. You know, everyone has either lead or mercury or OP or organophosphates. 
um, uh, organopesticides. Yeah, I think, and, and what is your treatments for the toxic metals? Uh, is it like avoidance of certain uh, food? You know, we know that there's this issue with seafood and mercury. Like, let's, let's talk about that maybe. How, how would you address those type, type of things? Well, let's, let's, whatever metal you find, you want to remove where it's coming from. So for example, it's mercury. You got to check their teeth, water okay. source, food sources, exposure in the environment, that kind of thing. Uh, and then we recommend chelation for the heavy metals. Yeah. The pesticides and organicides, as you know, are very difficult to treat. Yes. Yes, they are. They are. Um, have you had any experience or uh, success with sauna for any of the, the environmental chemicals? Yes. Uh, red, um, dry sauna, uh, infrared sauna, wet sauna, any type of sauna okay. is detoxifying and we recommend that. Yeah. And then maybe a shower afterwards, that kind of mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. Great. Um, and then uh, I think we, we also, you know, think about wellness modalities like acupuncture massage. I think there is some research on acupuncture massage for uh, high blood pressure. Any, any thoughts about those modalities? Yeah, they, they are effective. Um, acupuncture actually, as you know, Andrew, can reset the parasympathetic nervous system. Absolutely. Probably does a lot of other things too, but it does work some people better than others. Uh, any kind of relaxation technique, uh, whether it's massage therapy, meditation, is very effective. There was a study I came across think, looking at acupuncture research from Taiwan, where they have acupuncture as part of their insurance covered. You know, like everyone gets acupuncture there. 20,000 people with fibromyalgia. And one of the things they found was not only that acupuncture reduced FMS or fibromyalgia, syndrome, but it also decreased the risk of CVD by 50%. So I thought that was really interesting. And the only yeah. thing I could think of was the, it's decreasing inflammation somehow. And maybe there's something with the PNF. It probably does because when you increase parasympathetic activity, inflammation does go down. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, so we're going to get to, uh, let's, let's go a little bit more into uh, nutraceutical since we're kind of talking about nutrition a bit. Uh, but actually, before we get to that, I do want to touch on the mic the macronutrients. So you mentioned the micronutrients, things like magnesium, potassium, and CoQ10. And um, uh, where do you find, where do you see the, the macronutrients uh, between uh, protein, fats, and carbs? You, you know, where are you on all that? And I know there's different diets out there. You mentioned DASH2 and, um, and everything. And Mediterranean diet, obviously, is very well researched. But um, you know, should people be looking at a certain percentage of macronutrients or you know, where are you on all that? And then I think, you yeah. could so let's uh, do it by groups, uh, carbohydrates, <clears throat> refined carbohydrates will increase blood pressure. Got so it. refined sugars and starches. So bread, pasta, white rice, dessert, sodas, stay away from those completely. And I, I, I see a lot of people that I hear a lot of people, they say, they, they tell me, I don't eat sugar. I just eat bread and pasta. You know? right. <laughs> so, so I think that's, we have to be really clear. Like a lot of these highly refined pulverized grains that turn into sugar quickly may increase insulin, which then will drive up hypertension. Yeah, and, and fruits, for example, uh, sucrose, fructose. I mean, uh, you're going to get sugar from fruits. You got to be careful there as well. Now, complex carbohydrates, which is primarily vegetables, fiber, you have all of that you want. So a lot of fresh organic vegetables of different color. And I would usually recommend at least eight servings a day, a servings which you can get in the palm of your hand. 
Yeah. Yeah. Much, actually. Well, then, it is, it is summertime and the, the berries are glistening at all the farms. So <laughs> how many servings and people are going to ask this. So how many servings of fruit would you recommend a day? And if so, what kind of fruits would you say? Yeah, so we recommend eight servings of vegetables and four servings of fruits. And we recommend mostly berries. Berries. Yeah, I agree. They have a lower glycemic yeah. index. Yes. There are many health benefits to berries. And I think one of them is to increase the endothelial health. Correct. Yes, they're great antioxidants. Mm -hmm. The second group are the fats, and they're a little more complicated. Everybody's confused. Um, the worst fats are the long-chain saturated fats, and by that I mean um, a carbon length of C12 or longer, um, and then also trans fats are bad. Those will increase blood pressure. The long-chain C12, that's like a steak or things like that? Or... It would be, yeah, it would be things like <laughs> Well, of course, the South is like lard. <laughs> okay, so yeah, lard. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's, it's all the things you, you don't want to eat, like butter, okay. uh, you know, lard, uh, fat from uh, red meat. That so I guess truly meat. healthy paleo diet is probably not a bacon double cheeseburger, right? That's not, <laughs> not, not truly, yes. <laughs> uh, but the good fats, though, are omega-3 fatty acids. That's what you get from cold water fish or a supplement. Mm -hmm. And monounsaturated fats be like nuts and olive oil. Those are good fats. You want I know them. there's some, I, I won't say who, but there's definitely some in the functional medicine space that are more in the paleo. And it's like, it's okay to eat your, you know, steak if it's, if it's grass fed and you, know, you do some of the, um, some of the vegetables that neutralize the tea mouse. So I'm kind of curious your thoughts on some of the paleo community that's low carb. Is that, and you know, there are some studies and I think there's maybe controversy over this, like what's good, what's not good. Um, certainly not too much saturated fat. Someone with CAD that's documented, you may want to reduce that saturated fat. What about someone that's just sort of healthy and maybe they don't have a high calcium score or something like that? Is saturated fat bad for them? Um, I think you should stay away from long chain fat, saturated fats. But if you eat um, meat from organic sources, that uh, is cows that don't eat corn, but yeah. graze on grass, yeah, their meat's not got the bad fats in it. Yeah, they're so they're more okay. omega-3. They're eating the grasses. Omega got it. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. So that's okay. And the last group is protein. Protein of good sources, again, uh, high quality protein, organic, no pesticides, no organicides, no hormones, lowers blood pressure. Mm -hmm. uh, they're natural uh, amino acid links that look like an ACE inhibitor. Got it. So yeah, and I think uh, whether it's proteins from uh, so so fish, uh, but but also also uh, chicken. It could be vegetable protein. Vegetable it could be animal protein. protein. Okay, so kind of protein, like pea protein. Any of those are good. Great, great. Sardines. Sardines. Yeah, yeah. Sardines. Yeah. Uh, maybe with a little lemon and olive oil would be good. And any, any What's thoughts on, any thoughts on, um, uh, protein powders? You know, I think there's a lot of protein powders on the market there. And, um, yeah, you, better be, you want to be careful with the protein powders to be sure they're high quality and they're organic based. Okay. The only protein powder that I recommend on our, on a regular basis is whey protein. Okay. Um, but also, uh, if you don't, can't take away your dairy allergy or whatever, pea protein is a reasonable substitute. It's, it's Ice protein, maybe. Uh, and then lifestyle, you know, we know that lifestyle has the ability to reverse disease and to optimize wellness. And there's many aspects to lifestyle, but what lifestyle and stress reduction habits do you recommend as a, as a clinician, as someone who has a lot of, you know, experience with this, uh, seeing this a lot, 
uh, with with hypertension, but but I think even to prevent hypertension. Well, we we screen them first to identify which ones are at risk for high blood pressure with exercise or have issues with arrhythmias with exercise. So once they're screened, if they're good to go, we start them on a very slow graduated exercise program. And the end result is we recommend four hours, excuse me, yeah, four hours a week or four times, one hour times four days. And you do probably about maybe 40 minutes of resistance training with weights and about 20 minutes of aerobic training. So it's a two to one ratio. That's what's been shown to keep down heart disease and blood pressure. And that's actually in the book too. We actually describe the, we call it the ABCT exercise program, which you can go from being a couch potato and it tells you exactly what to do, how to do it, when to do it up through Olympic athletes. And so you can pick your program and do that. So exercise, we recommend eight hours of sleep every night, some sort of meditation relaxation program, and then obviously reducing the ideal body fat, particularly getting their visceral fat to normal. So for a female, it's below 22%, and for a male, it's below 16%. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I have some work to go. I've, I've gained uh, some muscle mass back and uh, lost some fat post uh the worst of COVID, hopefully it's been the worst of COVID, but uh, certainly it's been tough, you know, uh, and I think that, you know, a lot of us uh, often think about how do we prevent disease and, you know, how do we help with our own lifestyles, but it's just so, so interesting to hear the research that says you need four hours of exercise, you know, meditation, uh, more of a, a hip diet, you know, hip nutrition plan. A lot of these things are not necessarily part of the the standard you know we talk about what's called the standard american diet or sad diet in a way and and you know even that word standard it implies that well everyone's doing it so it's got to be normal it's got it's accepted (laughs) what what are your thoughts of the standard american diet you know the the hardies or the burger king or the you know whatever it is it's a pretty awful diet i mean you're getting but, uh, but it's standard. It's, it's, it's standard. Normal. It's standard because it's common. <laughs> yes. But it doesn't mean it's optimal. It's bad. It's, it's oh, bad it. standard. Yeah. Okay. So we should call it bad, sad, bad, sad. Yeah. So we'd rather be hip than bad and sad. Hip, hip is the way to go. Right. Yes. Um, what kind of exercises are you thinking for resistance training? Is that like body weights? Uh, is that more like, uh, using iron, pumping iron and things or. Yeah. There's a lot of ways to do resistance training. Uh, yoga actually gives you good resistance training, but if you really want to build muscle mass, which you need to do because you lose it after about age 40, uh, you can either go to a gym and do light weights, or you can buy some, you know, five, 10, 20 pound handbells uh, and do your own gym at home. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you, you lean muscle mass is important to maintain insulin sensitivity, but also to maintain normal blood pressure because those two are related. Yes. And, and then we know about in terms of you know, fat mass, lean muscle mass, et cetera, that, you know, body impedance often gives us more data than a BMI. Right. And so we can have, people can have normal BMI. I, I was reading something the other day that was saying that in the 1940s, BMI was 22 and we were getting nine hours of sleep at night before cell phones. Right. So it's kind of, you know, it's like, that was the normal, you know, and everyone was eating organic because there probably weren't as many pesticides, you know, that those right. things. So definitely, um, this can really tell us the truth about, you know, where we are in terms of visceral fat and looking, looking at that body and penis analysis. Do you, do you, um, find that to be helpful in, in your practice? Yeah, we have a, we have a BIA in our office and all the patients come in and get that done. Yeah. And then they, we put them in a really good nutrition weight loss program and we track them on a regular basis. 
And we've got people on our program that have lost a uh, hundred pounds in six months. So That's amazing. Yeah, that is really amazing. And then, um, I guess, you know, people would probably want to know about top, you know, two, three supplements. Would you say if someone had high blood pressure, what are your go-tos? I know you've uh, talked some about some of the, the products that had algae in it that helped the endothelium, but I'm, I'm kind of curious about your kind of latest. Yeah, there's, there's about, I'd say three or four that are absolutely consistently good with lowering blood pressure. Uh, the first one is a nitric oxide booster called Neo 40. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's a beetroot extract. Yeah. Another one's called Arteriosil, which is a glycocalyx builder. Third is um, whey protein. And a fourth is CoQ10. And a fifth is magnesium chelates. Let's get into the glycocalyx a little bit because I think the audience may not know as much about that one. Um, we talked a little about nitric oxide. I think Neo40 is great. Also, the glycocalyx, what is that and why is that so important in arterial and endothelial health? The glycocalyx is a mono layer of cells that is actually sits on top of the endothelium and it protects the endothelium. Um, and it has actually very similar functions. It, it can make nitric oxide, reduce inflammation, reduce oxidative stress and immune dysfunction. And it uh, protects the endothelium. So if your glycocalyx is damaged, then your endothelium gets damaged. So you want both of them to be healthy. So by using Neo40 and Arteriosil together, you enhance the integrity of both of those layers and you have less arterial stiffness, better endothelial function and lower blood pressure. Got so it. We've got clinical trials with both. That's that's separately really. and independently. Ind- independently, okay. And then any trials together yet or? Not yet, we're, we're working on that. Working on that, okay. All right, yeah. so we'll talk about that. Maybe. Yeah we to talk about in our time. Um, anything else that you can do to build up the endothelium and glycocalyx through say nutrition or lifestyle that you found? Um, I think the plant-based diet is important um, and getting on high, high antioxidants uh, and a low inflammatory diet, those will help. Um, and obviously, you know, following what's in the book related to, you know, the, either the Mediterranean or DASH2 diet, but the, as far as supplements go, um, hands down, Neo40 and Arteriosil have your best results. Yeah, yeah, those are great. I have used those too. Um, so I've started using those more as well. Um, and then I think the other question is on, on medication. So when do you decide to use medications? What is that trigger point there? This is one of the most important questions and I really want the audience to understand this. Um, when you have defined hypertension, with a 24-hour blood pressure monitor and several office readings, and you are sure they have chronic hypertension, you do not wait for the blood pressure to come down to normal by saying, okay, let's give you six months on whatever, uh, nutrition or low sodium. You need to start medication on day one because of a clinical trial that showed if you wait, you never catch up. You have arterial damage during that three months or six months, the patients never do as well. They never have as good control. So our rule of thumb is you identify the hypertension, what kind they have, you get them on all the things are in the book about lifestyle and supplements and so forth, nutrition, exercise, weight loss, but you start a medication at the same time to get their pressure normalized and let them then achieve their goal later. And then you can try to reduce or stop the medication. That's a great rule of thumb. And I think 
that's a really huge point is that this is important to, even if you want to repeat that, I mean, the, the clock is ticking. It sounds like once you have that diagnosis and, and you want to try to stop the, not stop the bleeding is not the right, the right analogy for this, but, you know, stop that dysfunction from happening. Cause that inflammation is just going to keep on snowballing. It sounds like. Yeah. Um, and then I wanted to ask a question about, I know some people have asked me that before about arterial calcification. Someone has a, uh, let's say a calcium score of 300, maybe 400, you know, they're, they're a bit overweight. They're working on the lifestyle, the TLC the nutraceuticals, maybe on some medications. They're doing the, the diet and exercise. Is there a way that you've seen, and I know maybe Ornish has done this as well, but, um, you know, to, to really, have you seen people have sort of arterial calcification reversal from, from some of the things that you've, you've done? Yeah, so let, this is a, a very controversial topic actually right now. But in the Hypertension Institute, I think we've solved the problem and we kind of know what to do, even though there may be controversy in the literature. I don't really have any controversy in my head. So I'll tell you what it means and what we do. Uh, CAC, coronary artery calcification, should be done in every patient. Uh, it's very cheap. It's $50 to do a CAC. So it's no reason. We're talking about a, the CAT scan? Uh, is... no, it's, called a C, it's called a coronary artery calcification. It's not a it's not a CT scan. Oh, okay. okay. Very different. Yeah. So there's not, there's not the amount of radiation. It's in, it's inexpensive. It's $50. And we do it on all the patients that come in. When you have a high calcium score, it can be the calcium in the wall of the artery, or it can be calcium in a plaque that's inside the arterial lumen causing an obstruction. You can't tell from the CAC, which of those it is. So if you get the calcium score and it's elevated, and again, you can define that a lot of ways, but the score should be zero. Mm -hmm. um, every time it goes up, there's increased risk. You know, if it gets over 100, you, you, know, you usually have a problem. But the higher the score, the more likelihood. So just to clarify, is this a blood test or is this something? No, it's an actual scan. It's, okay. a, coronary, it's a coronary artery scan. Uh, it's called a CAC, yeah. calcium score scan. Got it. Okay. It looks like a CT scanner, but it yeah. is not really not a, the yeah. scanning of a CT yeah. scanner. Got it. Uh, it's not a CTA. And so, so is this something that's available through regular radiology? Oh, yeah. Every, almost every radiology department can do this yeah. anywhere in the country. That's great. So if you get a high calcium score, you have to figure out where is the calcium. And the only way you can do that is with additional testing. Mm -hmm. Find out if it's a blockage or it's in the wall. So you end up doing like things like exercise echoes, nuclear medicine scans. And occasionally an arteriogram because you can't tell if they have chest pain or shorts of breath, high calcium score. You got to rule out, you know, coronary heart disease with blockages. Now, I know this is about hypertension, but I, I know it, I know here we talk about how if the CAC score is normal, we would maybe start some other uh, things for high cholesterol besides a statin. Is that how you work in the practice or well, do you start people in the statin? Yeah, uh, let's go back just for a second though. Uh, because if you get a calcium score of let's say zero or 10, which is low, doesn't mean you don't have coronary heart disease. It only means you don't have calcific plaque. Got it. A lot of people have soft plaque, no calcium. And the plaque can be you know 80%, but it won't show up on a calcium score. And that's the ones that are really dangerous because they can have a rupture yep. and yep. have a heart attack. So, um, so CAC doesn't really put you out of danger, it sounds like. Yeah, and you know, you, you have to play the odds. Yeah. Now, um, if you have a patient with a high calcium score and they have a high cholesterol, then you've got to deal with that. Now, we use 
LDL particle number lipid profiling, which is advanced lipid testing, because the routine lipid profiling is not that accurate. So LDL particle number and small LDL size drive risk for calcium score, but also for plaque. And we have the ability now, and we do, we've done this for almost a decade, to reduce not only calcium score, but also reduce plaque formation with our program. Nice. So you, you have found it to be helpful. And, and I think, do you feel like it's a combination of the nutrition and the nutraceuticals, the medications, lifestyle, it's like all, all combined? Yeah, you have to really use an integrative approach. Uh, you really can't be anti-statin. You can't be anti-nutraceutical. You really have to look at the data and define what works and put that together for the best interest of your patient. One thing real quick on that arterial calcification question is where are you on vitamin K and vitamin K2, K1, K2, MK4, MK7? Um, vitamin K is very important for arterial health and bone health. Uh, vitamin K2, MK7 actually has been shown to reduce arterial calcification and also build bone. Uh, the dose of vitamin K2, MK7 minimum is 360 micrograms a day which I think it is pretty commonly found in, in various supplements that you can find uh, professional grade, you know, supplements that, that, that certainly, and we know that uh, just for the listeners out there that are trying to increase their D right now, you got to take that vitamin K2 with the D that's typically what we recommend. Yeah, the, 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 the combination to try it is vitamin K, D and A mm, yeah. maintain arterial and bone health. Nice. Okay. And then uh, usually, you know, we talk about some, some uh, fun questions, but uh, I think if you don't mind, if you want to share with us your morning routine, uh, do you have any morning routine you'd like? <laughs> yeah, I, I <laughs> have a morning fly, routine. Flying around like, to, to different conferences. Yeah, yeah. It's like being in the Marine Corps, unfortunately. <laughs> and so a lot of people wouldn't want my morning routine. So I'll tell you what it is since you ask and you want to have a little fun here with me. Uh, I'm up at 3.45 in the morning. Inspirational for all of us. Yeah. So 3.45 a.m. out of bed, go to my exercise room. I have it in my house. Okay. I have no excuse not to. I do one hour of exercise every day, seven days a week. I don't even take a day off. Okay. Weights, ABCT exercise program, just like I described it. And during the time I'm doing that, uh, I have an energy drink, which I actually describe in the book. Okay. It's got all kinds of goodies in it. D-ribose, plant-based uh, powders, fruit-based powders, uh, calcium, magnesium, potassium. I mean, it's just full awesome. of goodies. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and Hershey's chocolate. You drink all that. It's really tasty <laughs> while you're exercising. Yeah. And then you go have a nice hearty breakfast. Uh, and I usually have smoked salmon. Uh, occasionally an egg, oatmeal, um, grapefruit, fresh orange juice. Uh, rarely have much bread though, but occasionally I'll splurge. Uh, and because you, you really have to have kind of a balanced breakfast to yeah. get all the protein and good carbs and fats back in your system after that kind of an exercise program. Yeah, yeah, and 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 you're exercising that much seven days a week. Your your body is going to be more insulin sensitive when you do that. And it's going to take in those nutrients yeah. a lot better. After. It helps to build the muscle back very quickly when you eat good after exercising. Well, you are the author of many books and publications and your new book is called controlling high blood pressure through nutrition supplements, diet, and life, uh, lifestyle and drugs. And you wrote it with your nutritionist Lee Bell, I believe. Yes. Yes, that's correct. Uh, and, and this is on Amazon and I guess other places as well. Yeah, Amazon uh, and probably most bookstores carry it now. And uh, it's actually 
uh, it's only been out for about six weeks. So it's hot off the press. Yeah. And all the information in it is cutting edge. In fact, uh, some of it's actually advanced beyond what's in the literature already. Great. Well, I look forward to reading. I just bought it. There were less than 10 copies left, so I had to get it. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Yes. Um, and speaking of books, since you're an author, what books have you read recently or book that you've kind of been enjoying recently that you could recommend to the audience and anything that you kind of have read? Yeah. Well, I'm going to be obviously self-serving here and recommend the book that I wrote or yep. edited, I should say. It's probably the leading cardiovascular textbook right now uh, that's truly integrative. Uh, it's called Personalized and Precision, excuse me, Personalized and Precision Cardiovascular Medicine. It's got about 40 different chapters, 40 high qualified authors. Uh, I edited this. It's only about a year old and it has all the information you need about everything related to blood pressure, cholesterol, heart attack, heart failure, prevention, treatment, lifestyle drugs, you name it, it's all in there. Great. Well, I look forward to reading that as well. I'm curious about the kind of interplay, and this is a little bit of a broader question, I would say, but, you know, between sort of the integrative functional uh, cardiology world and the conventional cardiology world, where, where are the cardiology colleagues that you kind of interact with? And I know, you know, there's different perspectives out there and all of that's fine, but I'm curious, you know, you know, I'm curious why this is not more, uh, uh, you know, uh, mainstream yet, you know, maybe it's coming, you know, I'd love for this to be more mainstream than it is, but, uh, or, or is it becoming more mainstream? Now? It, it's not actually, um, most, most cardiologists are trained, um, in their traditional fashion, uh, in medical schools and universities. And there's not a lot of nutrition taught. Uh, supplements are not taught. Some of the tests that we do in the hypertension institute are not done, like checking for endothelial function, endothelial, uh, yeah, stiffness, yeah. all those things. Yeah. And most of the tests are treadmills, nuclear medicine scans, MRIs, and then catheterizations. It's it's interventional, so stents, mm -hmm. bypass crap. That's that's the way the training is. What we do is look at the entire spectrum of everything that you need to prevent, but also treat. So uh, there's not very many integrative cardiovascular folks in the United States. Um, but there needs to be more like you for sure. So thank you so thank much you. for the work you do and all the research and advocacy. And I think uh, one other, so thank you again, Dr. Houston, for joining us. And please check out Dr. Houston's new book, which is again called Controlling High Blood Pressure Through Nutrition supplements, lifestyle, and drugs with his nutritionist, Lee Bell. And if you enjoy this conversation, please take a moment to leave us a review. It helps our podcast to reach more listeners. And thank you for taking the time to be with us today. And thank you very much, Mark, for being on the podcast. I look forward to having you back again soon. I will. Thank you, Andrew. Have a great day. Thanks again for the invitation. Thank you.